Thank you, Mike, very much. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you this morning. We're going to return back to the life of David this morning. I would invite you, please, to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11 today. And uh, we'll try to get back into the swing of things with the life of David uh, after our little interlude that we've had speaking about revival the past month or so. So, 1 Samuel 17, if you're able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. First Samuel 17, 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted at the, to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for the battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. So, about five weeks ago, or six weeks ago, when we were last looking at David's life, we saw David being anointed to be the king, and then being pressed into service as the Lord began to prepare him to be the king. Yeah, he, he didn't just get anointed and then just get thrown into office there. Uh, there. It was going to be some time before that took place. David was being taken out of the, the fields watching the sheep, and he needed uh, some training. So he got some hands-on training right there in the court. The Lord arranged that rather perfectly, and put him in the service of a man who uh, was deeply troubled. As the uh, as Saul began, he too had experienced the particular and special anointing of the Spirit of God to prepare him to do his work. But because of his pride, because of his ongoing sins, uh, the Lord determined to replace him David, once anointed, had the Holy Spirit rush upon him 
but the Spirit of God left Saul. In that, um, in that hole, the Lord allowed, uh, by way of punishment, an oppressive spirit that often took Saul into some areas of depression, it would seem, uh, rage, and just um, discouragement. Uh, and we'll see some of that here in this passage that we already have just a little bit as we read it. But from David's perspective, uh, so far, so good. Things have been going pretty well. Saul would could be deranged every once in a while, but David would play. We read in chapter 16 that at this particular time, Saul loved David, uh, found him in great favor, um, wanted to make him his armor bearer, all of those kinds of things. So that seems good. David's learning lots of things as he's looking along, but uh, looking at what's going on. But now um, it's the it's the season of warfare, um, and the Philistines re-engage. Uh, this was a this was a regular thing of uh, invasions from the Philistines. And David, um, he's back home, taking care of the sheep again, kind of going back and forth between court. But Saul, there's no court's not in session. <laughs> Saul wasn't there. Saul was out in the field with the armies. So David was back home taking care of the sheep and so on. And uh, he's going to uh, show up on this scene in a little bit. So this passage, as you probably noticed, it's not about David really at all. It's about Goliath. More broadly speaking, it's about the enemy of Israel. And looking at this time of battle that is before them. I'm sure David was aware of it. David knew what was going on. Uh, nothing like a, a war to settle a young man who might be getting pretty excited about taking the reins of the kingdom and to realize it's not all fun and games. There's a, there, there are fights to be fought. Of putting yourself into harm way, if that's going to be something that is going to take place. And coming face to face with the enemy is a sobering thing. Now, as I looked at this passage, this passage is going to be a little bit different. Uh, and I'm going to end up, I'll just tell you right now, I'm going to leave this message on a note that I would rather not. Because... I like happy endings, and we don't have a happy ending at the end of this passage. Not yet. We're going to be talking about that next week. Uh, but this is a this is a stage-setting passage. It's providing some details that you need to know so that you have a full understanding of the significance of what David is going to do and what's going to happen. And this event, this foundational event, is going to undergird everything that David does as a king going forward. Almost everything that goes on somehow relates back to this incident, either for good or ill. And we'll see that as we go along. But when it comes to our enemy, any enemy, you, you need to know 
how that enemy operates if you're going to be able to stand fast. And here, this enemy that is coming up uh, against Israel, not just Goliath, but Philistines as a whole, they're not there to play fair. They're not there to play nice. They're not there to play at all. They're there to destroy Israel. And the enemy of our soul is not playing games either. We need to understand who he is. We need to understand how he operates. And it's interesting when you look at Goliath and all the details that are given here, you start to go, you know, this isn't just about Goliath, is it, Lord? Our, the adversary of our souls functions in much the same way. And he wants to destroy us. Now, I want you to notice something. With verse 1, right off the top. Where does all this take place? Are these just meaningless details? Well, they just met at Soko there. In between Soko and Ashaka. Is that... Anybody know where those are? No? Oh, come on. you got to know that. Geography Israel a little better than that. Oh, I had to look it up too. We go south of uh, Jerusalem, which really wasn't even all that functioning yet. Uh, but you go south and then head west towards the coast. And Soko, and if you're if you're familiar at all, if you're not, maybe some of your Bibles have maps in the back. Um, but right up the center of the land of Canaan are is a, is a range of mountains, okay, taller hills and so on. And in those in those mountains, of course, have foothills that then go down to the plain that leads to the coast. So Soko and Azekah are in those foothills. That's when it talks about the mountains and the valley of Elah. There, that's where they're at. They're in those those foothills, those little spurs that are coming out from that range, heading down to Gath, and Goliath comes from Gath, uh, Philistine uh, center, uh, down towards the coast. So it's kind of in that south-central, a little to the, the west portion of Israel. But note that Soko, it says, belongs to Judah. Why is that significant? Again, the Philistines are invading. They're, they're making an incursion into Judah's territory. Is there a principle there? Where, think about it. Where, the, when it, when it comes time to temptation and all those kinds of things, I would hope and pray that when uh, the, that the temptations that come into your life are not as a result of you going out and seeking them. I look around, see, I'm pretty sure that for most of you, you're not doing that. What does your adversary do? Does he only wait to attack you when you do something stupid and go out seeking for trouble? Now he he's looking for a toehold in your territory. He comes to you. He brings the fight to you. And that's what, exactly what the Philistines are doing here. The enemy isn't sitting back and waiting for you to come to him. He knows that most of the time, by the grace of God, you and I would just as soon stay home. So he comes calling in a place where we feel secure, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the question before us 
is this. Are you going to fight? Or are you going to cave? Pretty simple. Now, I've subtitled this little message, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. If you're a Spaghetti Western fan, you'll know where I got that title. But, uh, in any case, there, there are some good things that are happening here, even though this seems to be kind of a, uh, a, a grim passage in some respects. But notice it says the Philistines gathered uh, their armies for battle, and they gathered there at Soko. Well, uh, Saul and the men of Israel, they were gathered. So the good here is that it's, first of all, that they're gathering. They're gathering against the enemy. Good. That's awesome. I'm, Saul and the armies of Israel were doing what they were supposed to do up to a point. They were gathered. And in that gathering, um, they drew up in line of battle. They're not just camped over here. They're they're prepared. They're preparing for this fight. But we know from a little bit later on in the chapter, how long did Goliath and the Philistines challenge Israel as they stood there prepared to fight? It was 40 days. On and on and on. And what did Israel do? Nothing. Though it says, well, it does say that they were fighting, but you get the idea it's little skirmishes going up. There was nothing serious going on. You know, we're, but, but it's good, okay? The good here is that it's good to gather our forces against the enemy. It's good to make preparation for the fight. It's good to have our supply lines. It's good to have our weapons. It's good to have the people around us and the order and everything else. But the fact of the matter is, is that just gathering and being prepared is not the same thing as actually fighting. Chief Glazier and I were talking uh, before the service today about a, a fire that took place this past week. Poor gentleman lost everything. Um, and it wasn't the fire department's fault. Uh, it was fully engulfed when they got there. And that's uh, what happens sometimes, particularly with an older building, and go through it pretty quickly. But what would happen if your fire department just uh, did the training every Thursday night and you got all your equipment? You gather up, sit around, talk about what you're going to do, and so on. And, boy, it just feels like, well, I've got my uniform. I'm trained. I've trained I, I, I show up. And then the uh, pager goes off. The call comes in. And you sit there. What good does all that preparation do and all the gathering do? It doesn't do anything. So there's good to a certain extent, but you actually have to fight. And that's kind of the problem here, because the enemy is a pretty awesome enemy. And I don't mean that in a good sense. He's, he's a terrifying a terrifying enemy. So this is, that's, the, that's the bad part. You have to... You have to 
kind of put yourself in Israel's shoes as they're gathered up there. And who knows? When they first went out, they may be thinking, all right, army to army, we can do this. They show up, and who steps out but uh, the jolly Philistine giant. And he's an intimidating character. And Israel, who's already not on the firmest of ground as far as their courage goes, has to be sitting there going, if it was modern vernacular, they'd be going, oh, this is bad. This is going to be bad. Because this enemy is not one that anyone there was going to take lightly. Now, uh, for one thing, he was bad in his size. Now, depending on which cubit measurement you use, probably the most common one would be about 18 inches or so. so some, and, and it really varies, but it can be up to 23 uh, inches as well. Goliath was either somewhere between 9.5 feet tall and 13 feet 4 inches tall. Yeah, depending on which cubit you use. Most people will go with the shorter one because it just boggles our minds to think that somebody could be 13 feet tall. So we go with the nine and a half, which is as much of a stretch as most of us are willing to do. Somewhere in there, you have a guy that, that steps out, uh, not even head and shoulders by everybody else. He's like waist and shoulders by everybody else. And he step, steps out, and not only is he enormous. But, man, this guy is equipped. You're talking about equipment. He is bad to the bone in his weaponry. Now, I went ahead and Phil, I didn't leave anything for you to fill out as far as the list goes. I just gave it all to you. But it, you know, this is bronze, 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 bronze. There's a, one that the, the spearhead seems to be iron. And we're not told that the shield's made of, but we can presume that that also was made of bronze, or at least had was sheathed in bronze, if nothing else. That kind of shield would be awfully heavy. But in any case, Goliath's got a bronze helmet. Bronze, by the way, is the Cadillac of armory uh, metals in that day. Bronze mail coat. That bronze mail coat weighed approximately if you go by the shekels there, uh, about 125 pounds. Just the male shirt. Doesn't tell us how much the helmet weighed, but you know, I can tell you with the, the fire helmet that I wear, made out of you know composite woven materials, carbon fiber, you know all that kind of stuff, it's supposed to be lighter. By the time you wear that thing for a while, you're, it feels like your neck wants to snap off after a couple hours. This is a bronze helmet. Bronze leg armor. Anybody ever, what, dating myself here, but when you, it used to be that when you'd do exercise programs, remember those ankle weights? Anybody ever use those ankle weight things? Chop around in those things. Even if they were two or three or four pounds at most, after a while, like you took them off and you felt like, you were flipping around, you know. You just felt light on your toes. He's got sheets of bronze that presumably go from ankle up to 
uh, at least the knee. Then he's got a bronze javelin. A javelin's a throwing spear. So solid metal, something to chuck at the enemy. Oftentimes they'd have a, a kind of a sling thing too at the end that they would use to throw it. But still, think of the arm to throw that. Goliath was massive. And then the spearhead, this is the, the spear like a weaver's beam. You can figure two to three, four inches around. The guy's hands had to be enormous to get around that. And then that iron head weighed 15 pounds. And then he's got his sword. Now, this, this is something, I don't know about you, for many years I always thought, how did David ever pick up Goliath's sword? Because when we think about Goliath, he's so enormous, we think that he must have carried this enormous sword. <clears throat> I always think of the Scottish Claymore, the two-handed. But that wasn't what Philistine swords were like um, and what they were used for. They were used for close-up work, so they didn't have, they weren't huge. They would be two to three inches. And if it's bronze, uh, bronze tends to be brittle, so if you get it too much longer, they tend to crack and break. So this sword is probably to maybe a little longer for Goliath's size, but uh, it's a short sword used for close-up work. So he's got the distance work. The spear is for driving through um, and planting things like that, against defending against cavalry or whatever. And then for close-up, you have the short sword. Um, it was apparently very well made. Later on, when David would borrow that sword, um, he would... He made the comment, there is no other sword like that one. Apparently, it was um, extremely well made. And it was of a size that a person like David, a normal-sized guy, could could use. And then uh, he had a, 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 a shield that was carried by uh, a servant. We're going to have a chance to talk about this, this uh, shield-bearer who was... Of all the pieces of armor that Goliath had, at least at this particular occasion, the shield bearer was utterly useless. Um, but if you see pictures, if you go and look at Goliath's armor, you get some really uh, cool pictures and artist renderings of it. And it just kind of puts it in your mind. And you see this, here's this enormous guy. And the shield bearer is a standard sized guy. And he's holding the shield. And it's like the shield comes up, the top of the shield comes up to Goliath's waist. So it kind of, it, it would have covered the more vulnerable areas from the waist down. But think about what this guy looks like coming out from the ranks of the Philistines. He is covered in bronze. The sun would gleam on that bronze. From the ground up, you see a wall of bronze walking towards you. The only real flesh may have been on his arms. And his face that you could see. Everything else I mean, was basically he was a walking tank. And he's got an entourage. You look at that kind of weaponry and you wonder that the soldiers of Israel were worried about this guy. And yet, still, you have to say, he came out for 40 days doing this and nobody... Nobody got the gumption up to do to even try anything. 
That's how terrifying he was. And then, add to all of this, he's bad in his strength. Yeah, and I don't mean that he's weak. I mean that bad. Uh, he's pretty incredible in his strength. Strength of his body, for one thing, just to carry what amounted to uh, probably pretty close to 200 pounds of armor and equipment. Uh, would be pretty amazing. Um, but he, beyond that, he had incredible strength of resources behind him. There was the armies of Israel, the nation of, of, of the Philistines, the nation of the Philistines behind him. So he's got all of those resources, but just he himself. This we, we read this about the bronze, and in I you know, wondered why why does the Lord want us to know all about this bronze? Bronze this, bronze that. Well, the height of the bronze trade had passed probably a couple of centuries before this time. Uh, bronze, as you may or may not know, is made out of tin and copper. Those two key ingredients. Tin, uh, a lot of it came from Wales and the north shores of Cornwall and Devon. And so it was very expensive to get this stuff. And then it, supply lines broke down. Um, I don't remember where the copper came from, but anyway... Bronze, by this time, was really expensive. You couldn't afford this. The average guy couldn't afford this stuff. What this tells us about Goliath is that he, uh, for the day, was uh, likely fabulously wealthy. Again, the sword, even the sword, as David would later judge its quality. This was a he, he was going out with the latest, greatest, the best stuff money could buy. And when you look at this, here's this guy who is absolutely enormous. Who has every resource available to him that nobody else does. He had to appear to be unstoppable. How do we fight against a guy like that? How would anybody stand up against them? How, how, and, and even if they did, how could they ever be successful? How would we ever penetrate that armor? And to add to all of it, you get the distinct impression, even before we get to verse 8, that Goliath comes out there with a swagger. He knows what he's got. He knows what he can do. He knows the strength of his arm. He knows that Saul and Israel, and particularly as the days go on and nobody comes out, he becomes more and more emboldened uh, in his arrogance with this utter confidence. And you know, when people come out and they're totally, completely confident, unless you're super confident about something yourself, you're likely going to give way. Goliath was bad in his size and his weaponry, in his strength, but he was—he had a bad attitude. He was arrogant, full of himself, and very, very confident. And from a human perspective, you could understand why he would have that kind of confidence. 
that brings us to the ugly part in the last section, verses 8 through 11. And that is where that arrogance, that attitude really comes out. The ugliness of his contempt. Look at verse 8. He, he shouts to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for the battle? And basically, basically what he's saying is, Are you out here to fight or not? What are you, what are you weaklings out here to do? He has no respect, absolute contempt for them. And yet, he does what a lot of bullies do. He try, he pretends to be reasonable. You know, see, I'm just a servant. That's completely disingenuous. He may not be the king, but there's not a single king in, in, among the Philistines that's going to tell Goliath what to do. Goliath knows that he's the top dog in the whole nation. I'm just a servant. And you guys, you're just servants. So, you know, let's servant to servant. Let's hatch this out. The, the, you know, the big guys, Saul, and my guy, you know. We can take care of this between ourselves. And it's just ugly. It defies Israel. Defies everything about them. Does everything he can to demoralize them in his conversation with them. And this ugly contempt is demonstrated in the ugliness of the consequences that 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 uh, Goliath is proposing. Now this sounds like a negotiation, but it is not. It is absolute terms. Now why didn't Saul send out a delegation to say, tell you what, why don't you go back home, go step back in line, and let those who actually have authority here do something. Saul didn't even get <laughs> responded in a, a cocky way himself. He didn't respond at all. There was nothing. But the consequences that Goliath was, was proposing, the consequences were dire. They were life and death. Not only for the guy who would face Goliath, but for the whole nation to go into servitude if the guy failed. And uh, Saul was just taking it. But this was not a time or a place for indifference, was it? It was not a time or place for inaction. It was not a time or place for um, soft peddling anything. This was life or death. The consequences were ugly. But rather than the response that should have come from Saul, what was the response in verse 11? They were dismayed. They were greatly afraid as they heard these words. We've been looking at the ugliness of the enemy. Sometimes the enemy, uh, however ugly, however arrogant, however bold, however strong, as much as we look at that and just think, oh, well, you know, this, is, this situation is hopeless. Perhaps the ugliest thing of all in this passage is verse 11. The ugly cowardice that was demonstrated by Saul. 
Saul and Israel were prepared, okay, but prepared for what? Perhaps Saul went out there at best just to save face. After all, he's the king. He should go out. He should do something. They're coming in. We've got to at least put a roadblock in front of them, maybe do something. But they're, they're, all of their gathering and all of their preparations was just so much window dressing. And we'll talk more about this next time. Um, but Saul clearly had no courage here. The Lord's Spirit had left him, and he apparently could only go through the motions of acting like a king. And that impacted every Israelite under his command, almost. But they were all dismayed, all afraid. You know, they could have taken a hundred men, two hundred men, taking a squad, go down there and saying, "We're just going to squash this bug. He's a big one, so and we're, we're going to get hurt. Some of us are going to die, but we're going to overwhelm him, and it's going to be over." They didn't. They were too busy counting the cost to go out and actually do what they were supposedly there, all dressed and pressed and ready to go do which was to fight. Now, let's think about this a minute. Well, how does this apply to us? Well, like Saul and the armies of Israel, it is good for you to gather in your prayer closet at home. It's good for you to gather in the church for worship. And it's good to gather out in the community to uh, line up against wickedness. But just lining up and getting organized is not the same as actually fighting the fight. Your enemy is intimidating. Now, I want to be careful here to not only turn our minds to thinking of the enemies out there in our society, in our community, whatever battle we happen to be fighting of a political nature or a moral nature or something else in the community. Those are important. Those are all things to, to do. But let's start right where it's most uh, uh, vital, and that's within our own hearts. Just doing your devotions daily, just coming to church, all those sorts of things. That's great. You should do it. That's that's part of what it means to be a believer. But if you're not prepared to really stand up against temptation when you're outside of these walls, I ask you, what is the point? The enemy of our soul. And I'm thinking of the devil, but I'm also thinking of our own fallen nature. Is pretty formidable. It's pretty intimidating. The temptations can be overwhelming to just go. You know what? I just want to avoid all of this, and I don't. I don't and, and just and just capitulate, just give in. I, I did. Uh, did uh, anyone, as I was going through the list of the armor? Think of another list of armor anywhere in the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul describes 
what's necessary to stand up against the enemy of our souls. And he describes the armor of God there in chapter 2. And he talks about the helmet. He talks about the breastplate. He talks about the sword. He talks about the shield. He talks about the leggings and the feet and, and the girdle around us to, to, to keep us keep us protected from the fiery darts of the wicked. And it just looked at how Saul was fitted out there. And I thought, you know, our adversary is a great imitator. He takes those things that he knows are intimidating and that are intimidating to him. And he dresses up those temptations in those things. So the, the, the temptation seems uh, impossible to stand against. So that the enemies that are uh, of the gospel, enemies of the church, enemies of righteousness in our community, in our state, in our nation seem to be beyond our ability to stand up against. I mean, after all, the battle's overwhelming. The devil's that that great imitator. He has the powers of the world in his pocket. As Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the the, the uh, rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers that are over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And those powers are bigger, stronger, richer than you and I. And it can seem like everything is going their way. And then you add to that insult to injury, the, ma the maddening arrogance that the enemies of Christ exhibit. And the, the life and society-changing consequences that hang in the balance. And the battle is definitely discouraging and full of fear. Now I want you to think about something else. And we don't make a big deal about the church calendar here. Try not to add to what the scriptures tell us. But there are certain things that we know from, from the Gospels of, of a general timeline. And this first day of the week, uh, prior to Resurrection Sunday, is often referred to as Palm Sunday, referring to the, the entrance, the triumphal entrance of Christ into Jerusalem. People uh, threw palm fronds down for, for him to ride in on. And what a day that must have been. Talk about gathering. Oh, it looked good. They're preparing to welcome the king. They're gathered. But what would happen in the following week? The enemy, in all of his ugliness and power, and exerting everything that he could to, uh, through the corruption of the, the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the corruption of Rome, the godlessness of it, the talk about swords, spears, and armors. I mean, there was nothing that the followers of Christ could do. The only, Jesus, as he told Pontius Pilate, could very well have called down legions of heaven, but chose not to do so. 
to face the ultimate enemy of becoming sin for us and dying on the cross as necessary to defeat this formidable enemy, his adversary, the one Lucifer who wanted to supplant Christ and take his place. But I just want you to notice for now that the gathering on Palm Sunday was not enough. A fight had to be undertaken. Thank God that Jesus did it. And that brings us then to see the contrast to that cowardice of Saul. There's a need for courage. More than that, you and I must be filled with the Spirit if we are to stand. The one who, in his rebellion against God, had grieved God to the point that God removed his Spirit from him, was unable to stand. But in that condition, the battle wasn't just going to go away. Philistines weren't going, you know, Paul's just not himself today. So we'll go and we'll come back better uh, another day when they're better equipped, when they're ready to go, and we can really make a match out of it. No, they were prepared to hit him while he was down. And the Spirit of God and, and the our enemy will, in our own souls, and, and our adversary will hit us when we are weak and vulnerable. As I said before, he will seek a toehold in your life wherever and whenever he can. Too many content themselves with merely gathering, both personally and publicly, when what is needed is engaging the enemy. Speaking of this in a church context, a denominational context, way back in 1921 in uh, his book, Christianity and Liberalism, J. Gresham Machen, uh, writing about what was happening in not just the Presbyterian Church USA at that time, but uh, other denominations as well, where modernism had crept in and unbelief. He said, at the present time, and this sounds like he could be writing this today, at the present time, when the opponents of the gospel are almost in control of our churches, the slightest avoidance of the defense of the gospel is just sheer unfaithfulness to the Lord. It's great to gather. It's great to wave signs and, and write letters and do all those kinds of things in a community. But unless we're actually prepared to show up, it's window dressing. The results of the avoidance that Machen was talking about there in 1921 have been lived out in Western Christianity ever since. As church after church, denominationally and individual churches too, have abandoned the, the faith once delivered into the saints for the sake of relativism, for the sake of political expediency, or whatever. And then there's just that matter of your, your own soul. The battles that we fight. Yes, it gets weary fighting sin in our hearts. I know I get tired of it. I'm longing for that day when I'm made new and I see Christ and 
and, and made like impressions, seeing as he is, and his sin will be gone. But until then, beloved, you and I have to fight. I have to fight. The enemy isn't playing games. He wants your soul. He wants your society. Are you going to fight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage. It's a passage that doesn't seem to have a lot of hope in. And yet we do know how the story ends. So we hold on to that. Because we know that no matter how great the adversary is, you are greater. Greater is the one who is with us than he who is in the world. Lord, we love you. Help us to be faithful to you. Yes, Lord, help us to gather. Help us to prepare. And help us, Lord, to have the courage to fight by the enabling of your spirit. Fight righteously. Fight in a holy manner. Fight in a way that pleases you, but fight. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us victory in our souls, in our churches, in our communities. We might see your name exalted rather than blasphemed by the wicked. And we pray these things in Christ's name.